0: doing? If you don't know me, my name is Greg. I'm on the team here. In May this year, uh, my bride, Susan down the front here, uh, we went to Israel. And so I'm going to show you a couple of pictures because what I want to talk about is I'm going to show you the location of the story we're about to read. And we went there. It was a very hot day. And it's just on the outskirts of Jericho. So of course, some of you all know the stories of Jericho. In fact, one of the songs we were singing just before was around the walls of Jericho basically coming down. And that's where that event took place. And so we were in Jerusalem, Sue and I were in Jerusalem, and we took a bus um, down to Jericho. And literally you go, it's like a 25-kilometre trip, but you drop incredibly from very high above sea level, so it's about 2,500 feet above sea level, Jerusalem, to actually over 300 feet below sea level is Jericho in just 25 kilometres. So it's, a, it's, it's like a canyoning, snaking down into the wilderness. So have a look at the first slide. Actually, you guys can, can head off. Thanks very much. I didn't realise I had a, got a whole support crew up here this morning. It's great. So here is actually the outskirts of Jericho. And this mountain is called the Mount of Temptation. And it's called that because traditionally it's the location where Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness and was tempted by the devil, tested by the devil. So some of you will know this story. If, you, if you've got a Christian heritage of any kind, you would have heard this story about Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. He had no food to eat and at the end of that fast, the, the devil comes to him and tempts him with three specific things. And so I'm going to pick up Mark's version of that story today, which is the briefest version possible, and I'll get to that in a little minute. Now, Jericho, even the modern city of Jericho, is nothing special, I have to tell you. Um, I, didn't, I haven't got a photo of the actual city, but it's really quite bare. They call it the city of, of dates and palms these days because there's, um, on one side of the city there's rows of orchards of date palms. And in fact, they they do have some. They grow some of the best dates in the world there, um, because of when it, when it actually rains in Jerusalem, the water flows down towards Jericho. So there's actually not really any natural source of water there, but it rains a number of times a year and enough to actually drive down the water to the to the plain, basically. And so this is where it's based. You can see some little orchards, but they were fruit trees, I think there. And so. This is called the Mount of Temptation. Go to the next slide. Thanks, Jackie. Now, it's so high, you can't walk up there. Well, you can walk up there, but it takes over an hour. The day we were there, I think it was around uh, 40 degrees, 39 degrees. There's no shade, so hardly anything else grows there except for those actual orchards that have been set up. And so there's no grass, there's no tree coverage. It's actually quite inhospitable as terms of a landscape. In fact, as you drive down from Jerusalem to Jericho, there's, there's, there's no houses, there's no fruit trees, there's no grass. It's just desert, barren rock. That's all that's there, both historically when Jesus walked that path and also even today. The only people that live between Jerusalem and Jericho are actually nomads, and they're still there today. Um, they've got sort of herds of goats. We saw a couple of campsites where they were living. And, of course, these days they have these huge, big tanks where they hold water. Water gets delivered to them. Um, but very few people live in between these two cities. So you have to take a cable car up. So I took this. These are my photos. I took this photo. Um, obviously, I'm in the cable car behind. But we're heading up. But that's actually the city of Jericho. And in the very far distance is the Dead Sea. You can't really see it, but... Trust me, it's there. Um, And we went for a float in it, but that's another story. Go to the next one, Jackie. So this, we're halfway up in the cable car. And can you see sort of about nearly at the top in that little sort of crevice, there's there's a building. Can you see the building there in the photo? That's actually a Greek Orthodox monastery. And guess how many people live there? Two. Two monks live there. Um, It was actually originally the first monastery that was built there... Um, in in sort of early Christian church tradition so again this this is not necessarily guaranteed that this is the exact spot but the the concept is they built a little chapel, Um, this is going back like 1500 years, the Byzantines built a little chapel in a cave up at this level and there's a number of caves there but this is like the biggest one And so the assumption is that's actually the cave that Jesus spent most of his time during his 40-day fast Uh, because you can't actually live in the heat. You have to actually find some shelter. And the only shelter that was available uh, back then was not this building but in actual fact a few little caves. And so the biggest cave, which is not really that big, but at least you could sleep in there and live in there for some time. And so, you know, the Times, they built this little chapel and eventually the Greek Orthodox Church bought it in the late 1800s and built a monastery. But you can't, it's, it's very hard to get to. So it's literally built on the side of a cliff. Uh, we didn't get to go in there because um, they let so many people in a day. And when I heard there was only two people living in there, I thought, let's hope they get along because uh, <laughs> it's a long way down if you're not getting along. With your brother monk, so go to the next one. So there's we went back down the base, and you can do a camel ride. This is a true story. I do have the photo, but I didn't have the heart to show you. It's not good. But a nun sat on that camel while I was there and went for a camel ride underneath the Mount of Temptation. So you can actually go on the camel um, and have a camel ride, and you can see again the mountain in the background, so you can see how high it is. Can you see right at the top, you can see a fortress. Can you see the wall right at the top? That's a Roman fortress or the ruins of a Roman fortress that when they were there, they built that fortress to sort of protect the plateau and they had a good view of everything down towards the Dead Sea. And go to the next side. Next to the camel, you can actually go shopping at the Temptation Gallery. (laughs) What a great name for a shop at the base of the Mount of Temptation. Temptation Gallery. I think we've all been there. Uh, Not necessarily that one, but there's plenty of Temptation Galleries just across the road actually. Uh, so here, this this is actually where this story took, takes place and Jesus spent at least 40 days, it's actually a road that he travelled a number of times. So to get from Jerusalem to Galilee where he lived for three years, he lived in Galilee, um, you had to actually walk through Jericho and actually go back up or back down if you're coming down the road to Jericho. So you know when you're Jericho is probably most famous, or the road to Jericho is most famous with the story of the Good Samaritan, where he talks about, you know, there was a man going down, so you can picture it now, going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and the road in those historical times was quite dangerous. There were a lot of robbers, thieves, and it was very common to get attacked on your way down, and that 25-kilometre journey, or even on your way back up. So... Mark chapter 1, go to the next slide, thanks Jackie. Mark chapter 1, I I love Mark as an author, he just gets straight to the point, there's no fluff, there's no poetry, there's not a lot of detail, he's just trying to explain to us as his readers that Jesus is the son of God and he sort of proves it through his gospel or is writing the account of really Peter's sermon. So Mark was like Peter's assistant, so Mark wasn't actually one of the disciples but as Peter started to preach and, and go around announcing who Jesus was, Mark became like his PA effectively and that's what led to this gospel. So we, we've got these summarised Peter's sermons effectively in Mark's gospel, but Mark is not like John. You know, John's, there's a lot of love in John, there's poetry, there's plays on words, it's warm and fuzzy. Mark is writing to Christians who are also Romans and so he's more interested in power and authority. Because that's the culture they sat in. They weren't Jewish people waiting for a Messiah. That's who Matthew writes to. So Mark's writing to Roman believers who understand power because the Roman culture was one of power and authority. So he's sort of a guy that gets straight to the point. So this summary of Jesus' 40 days and the tempting or the testing in the wilderness is actually the shortest we have in the three Gospels. The story appears in, obviously, Mark chapter 1. It also appears in Matthew chapter 4 and also in Luke chapter 4. If you've heard other talks on the temptation of Jesus, you've probably heard the exposition or the unfolding of the three things that Jesus was tempted to do and how that can parallel into our lives. I'm not going to go there today. I'm going to tell you something totally different. And the reason why I've I've liked Mark's account is because, well, I think he captures what I'm looking for in terms of what I really want to tell you about this issue around being tested in the wilderness because the wilderness has become an, an analogy or a metaphor for us in, in Christianity of a time where we feel isolated, in pain or disconnected from God and so we use this phrase, we may not go into a desert like this but we use this phrase when we feel like life's not going the way we think it should And so we all have wilderness experiences where we either feel like we're being tested or we feel like we're being tempted. And so I'm going to unpack a couple of things from Mark's version and particularly land on one word that he uses as an author by choice. He he chooses a particular word to get across to the readers so they understand this one thing about the temptation that Jesus went through. This photo here is actually... One other side of the Jordanian desert, um, right near the Mount Temptation. So you can just see how rugged and inhospitable the terrain is. So here's what Mark has to say in terms of Jesus' temptation. It's up on the screen or you can read it in your own translation. If you have a smartphone or or, um, a Bible in front of you, um, you can look at Mark chapter 1. Just two verses. Mark's very quick. So he says, At once the same spirit pushed Jesus Into the wild. I'm reading from the message paraphrase. At once the Spirit pushed Jesus into the wild. For 40 wilderness days and nights he was tested by Satan. Wild animals were his companions and angels took care of him. That's it. Very short. We don't have the three things listed. We don't have the thing about him, you know, fasting and being taken up to the temple or the other high place to show the kingdoms of the world. Mark just, he wants to just tell us it happened. But what what is incredibly interesting is where it sits in Mark's gospel. So if you read all of chapter 1, we have this very quick introduction. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then he says, in those days, John the Baptist was preaching and baptising in the wilderness. And then we have the baptism of Jesus. So again, Mark's getting straight to the point. We don't have any stories about Joseph and Mary... We don't have any of the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament. Mark's getting straight into the point. This is the beginning of the Gospel. John the Baptist was baptising and he baptises Jesus. And then we get to this story. And the same spirit that fell on Jesus when he was baptised pushes him into the wilderness. And then the very next story from verse 14 is from then Jesus goes preaching or teaching about God's kingdom. So he actually starts his... Work of salvation and bringing salvation, which we all benefit from today. And so, really, we have this sort of three quick succession things happen. We have the beginning of the gospel, the baptism of Jesus, that includes, then we have this wilderness summary story, and then we have Jesus, the rest of the gospel is Jesus preaching and, of course, then dying on our behalf. And so, we have these three quick Things and it's where Mark fits this story that grabs my interest because I think it parallels our story. That is, when we get called into God's kingdom, so when you've you've been water baptised yet or not, when you have an encounter with God and you, you encounter his Holy Spirit and you know that God is there, what happens is God proclaims his love. So you think of the things that happened at Jesus' baptism. He says, this is my son... Whom I love and am well pleased. And I think what happens when we become, when we get into God's kingdom, however it happens for us, because it can be quite different. Um, Everyone has their own individual story, so there's not an exact pattern that God calls people or puts people into his family. But however it happens, God announces effectively over you, I love you, I'm pleased with you. But then the next thing that happens, you're in the wilderness. I think apparently, did anyone else have a story like that? Came to Jesus, it was fantastic. You know, I was told my life was going to be just beautiful, everything was going to work out fine. Bang, in the wilderness. Hello? Who loves being in the wilderness? No, didn't think so? I don't like being there. But guess what? We're all there. At some point in our lives, we are all there. And what? there's something that happens in the wilderness that can't take place anywhere else. For Jesus and for us. It's a forging of who God wants us to become. We encounter God in a different way in the wilderness than what we do say on a Sunday morning. We learn things about our relationship with God in the wilderness that we cannot learn anywhere else. We understand what it means to be totally dependent on God. Even though we don't want to be in the wilderness, that's the place the Spirit puts us. Credible. But then after the wilderness, like Jesus, we join God in his saving work. We actually participate in church life or small groups. We spread the gospel by telling our friends our own story and personal journey with God. We we get involved with what God wants us to do. But in between coming into knowing God and getting involved with what God wants us to do with our lives is wilderness. Wilderness matters to God. We don't want to be there we resist it we fight it we blame the devil for it we blame our neighbors for it you might blame your spouse for it but it's god that puts you there how do i know here's my first point go to the next slide it says the holy spirit pushed him into the wild very specific word that mark uses here so in the in the old language that mark wrote his gospel which was Uh, a form of Greek that lasted around 400 years. So about 200 years before Jesus was born, this form of Greek developed uh, because of Alexander the Great. He enforced all the towns and the cities that he took over to speak his language. Um, And it lasted for about another 200 years after Jesus was on the earth. And so it's written in this common language. It actually means common Greek. Corne Greek means common. It was common at the era. And so this word that he uses... It's not the word, well, the Holy Spirit invited Jesus into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit suggested Jesus should spend some time in the wilderness. The Holy Spirit gave him a bit of a nudge into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit never suggests or invites me to do anything. He shoves me. That's actually what the word means. It's such a strong word. It's, a, it's almost like it's a sailing term. So, you know, in, in ancient languages, they had a lot of word pitches. So they didn't have a lot of words So words had an image that that would come into your mind when someone spoke the word. And it's the word where the wind would fill a sail of a little fishing boat and push the boat forward. So it's actually by force. And so here's the thing I want you to understand from applying it to your own life scenario. Right now today, if you feel like you're in a wilderness that God has pushed you there for a purpose. And guess what? If you're in the wilderness, you're in pretty good company because if Jesus ended up there, you know, often we think, oh, what's wrong with me? I must be defective. I don't understand why God's got me in this position. Jesus wasn't defective. He went there. We go there. But it's the Holy Spirit's plan to place us there. Because God has a purpose for the wilderness that is far beyond our understanding, perception or comprehension. Far beyond. It does something in us that cannot be done in the joyous seasons, in the happiest occasions, in the most pleasant of spaces. In the wilderness where it's harsh and hot and terrible, maybe terrifying, God's doing something within us. That will change the destiny of how we are wired, how we speak, how we live with other people, how we serve him. He's more interested in forming or forging us than keeping us out of the wilderness. It's a Holy Spirit thing. God is often behind your testing in the wilderness. In fact, I think more often than not. That's, that's my first point. The wilderness with all its places of hostility inhospility it's a terrible place to be either either metaphorically speaking or the literal wilderness that you can see on the screen uh, which is part of that whole section of the desert where jesus was tempted it was there but guess what how many wilderness stories are there in the bible where jesus uh, not just jesus but god was doing something in all of his people i mean it's many wilderness stories you think of the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, how long did they spend in the wilderness? 40 years. So it's, this is not an uncommon scenario from being called into the kingdom, being spending time in the wilderness and then engaging with God in his salvation work. That's the pattern for all of us. Whether it's our ancestors in the faith or the fathers of the faith, whether we're talking about Jesus himself or whether we're telling our story this is the way that God has formed a style of shaping and developing us that cannot happen any other way. So the wilderness is empty of what we count as important. Comfort, provision, no food in the wilderness, there's a few wild animals, you know that was in those days there were jackals, there were some lions. They were threatening things. They weren't pleasant things to eat. You sort of kept away from wild animals. And Mark makes the point that they were there. It's not a pleasant place, but it strips us of everything else that we think is essential for living and gets us back to just a bare minimum. It's just us and God. Us and God. Even if the devil turns up to tempt you or to test you, what you experience in the wilderness is a stripping back of everything that you've held dear, but God says, hang on, You don't actually need that. You just need to understand really who I am. You need to understand my love, my faithfulness, my protection, my plan. You don't need any of the accumulated stuff that you think is essential for your living. Now, as Westerners who are well off, you know we've hit a level of, of living standard that is unprecedented in the history of humanity. Sometimes we don't feel like it, but that's what the truth is. Sometimes God stripping us back is a good thing because it's just God's creation, the rock, the desert, the sun, and God himself, nothing else. And again, you'll, you'll encounter God in such a different way in the wilderness, not in the mall, not at home, not in the workplace, not here on a Sunday morning. We, we visit all those places, but when God, by his Holy Spirit, pushes us into a wilderness, it's because... He is going to visit us in a way and we have a dependency on him that we never encounter anywhere else. So the wilderness is empty of everything we count important, but it's packed with the very present presence of God. That's what it's packed with. So the wilderness is very physical, so like visually, have a look at that desert again, very physical, harsh, hot, rugged, inhospitable, but listen to this the wilderness for you and me is also very spiritual. And that's what we often forget. So often our visually our eyes just you know, at least in a real wilderness like on the screen, or your wilderness personally, so your emotional state, your mental state, your your current experience or previous experience of feeling like you're in a wilderness experience. We just all we see and hear is what we don't have. But it's a very spiritual place because God is there. Very physical but it's very spiritual and one doesn't count the other out. The creation and the creator, that's who's in the wilderness. So you have this experience. Here's the second thing, number two. Go to the next one, thanks. The wilderness actually has a double meaning. The word testing also means Tempting, So some of you have probably realised in Mark's version that I've got on the screen there, the translator has used the word test. So he was in the wilderness 40 days where he was, Jesus was tested. Some translations will use the word tempted. So usually actually this is referred to as the temptation of Jesus. Now here's the very interesting thing that when you talk about testing and tempting, The word in the original language that's used here is the same single word and it's always mean the same thing, both at the same time. In fact, it's only a recent development in the 1700s in the English language where the word temptation in English developed a connotation of like seduction or to seduce. So the temptation was a negative thing. It's, you know, for instance... um, At Christmas time, you'll be tempted to eat too much pudding uh, or too much food or too much pizza at the lawn bowls. Um, We talk about temptation in terms of like lust. So we see someone else that's attractive and our thoughts run wild. But that's actually a recent development in our English language from the 1700s. That shift took place. Before that, even in English, the word to be tempted, you could see it in two single lights at the same time. So it can be a temptation or a testing. So what's the difference? If it's the same word originally, both in English but especially in Mark's language, what's the difference? What's the difference between a temptation and a test? Well, glad you asked that question. A temptation is really about the person or the the thought because it has a corruptive moment you could actually succumb to doing the wrong thing and you know it's actually going to corrode a part of who you are it's going to take you further away from your relationship with God you're going to mistreat other people and damage them and of course you actually corrupt yourself it's actually about the idea of your response so do you give in and do the incorrect thing becomes temptation but a test so again same word A test is a refinement, it's character. You you persist, you persevere, you do what is right regardless of what you think or how you feel at the time because of the wilderness environment and you come out a better, stronger individual. Same word, two meanings. And so the reason why often in Matthew's Gospel, for example, they use the word Jesus was tempted... Is because it says the devil came to him. So when the devil comes to him or even to us, he has a intent to corrupt us. Even as Christians, so if you're a believer here today and you're discipling yourself after the ways of, of Jesus himself, living out his teachings, coming to church, worshiping together, you know, we none of us are perfect, we make mistakes. But if you're a Christian, even when you get tempted by the devil, it's because he has the intent to destroy and corrupt the very gospel and salvation that you have. So it's about his intent. It's not necessarily about your condition. But we feel it's about our condition. So here's the thing. We often assume that temptation is sinful. Well, hang on a minute. Jesus was tempted. So... We have to realise the temptation itself is not the problem, it's what we do with it. You get the opportunity to find, is it a test that will grow and mature you or will you give into it and you'll be corrupted and you'll be dysfunctional and you won't fulfil the benefits of all the salvation that God's offering you? It's really up to us. That's why it's a single word, that has a dual meaning. And Mark understood that. His his first readers in the first century, they knew that's what that word meant. And in English, because those words have become so separated now, it's very hard. The translator has to decide on one or the other. But you could put both words in there at the same time because it means the same thing at the same time. Wilderness tempting, wilderness testing. And so, you know, we know a lot of scriptures about testing, Um, In fact, the Bible tells us that people test other people to explore their capabilities. There's a whole lot of scriptures around that idea. Um, So, of course, probably one good Bible example is the Pharisees coming to Jesus to test him. Same word in the Greek, same word. But it was their intent. They wanted to prove him wrong. They were testing his doctrine, to use a word that we would probably use, or his beliefs. Um, In the Bible also, it says we are to test, same word, ourselves. Now, again, the most common one we hear is when we come around communion or the Lord's table, where Paul in 1 Corinthians talks about examine, is often the English translation of that word, examine yourself or test yourself before you eat and drink of the body and the blood of Jesus. In other words, are we treating each other in a way that, that reflects the Jesus that we're actually eating and drinking of. That's really what Paul's talking about there. You know know when he says, um, don't eat and drink of the, the body of the Lord in an unworthy manner, that English translation, unworthy manner, we often think it's got to do with, am I perfect? Lord, do I deserve to eat this? Did I sin the other day? Actually, I yelled at my wife. That's actually not what it means. What it means is the way they were living. So if you read 1 Corinthians, they're mistreating each other. Some weren't eating, some were getting drunk. They were doing all sorts of terrible things and Paul's saying, you're not living in a life that's worthy of what you're about to eat. It doesn't represent Christ. And in fact, he says, that's why some of you have died. God judged them to the point where some of them died because their mistreatment of the body of Christ, that's you and me, didn't represent the very thing they celebrated as a community and that's the salvation through the blood and the body of Jesus. So we, at times we have to examine or test ourselves. People test God. In the Bible, this is very common. The Israelites did it for 40 years. In fact, there's a, there's a, there's a great quote in the book of Hebrews uh, where it actually, let me see if I can find it. It says here, um, let me see if I can find it. He, yeah, Hebrews 3, nine. The writer of the Hebrews says, Your ancestors, so he's talking to Jewish Christians, your ancestors tested and tried God. For 40 years, they saw what God did. Sometimes we test God by our arrogance, our insolence, you know, and what God does actually in His mercy and love, He still provides for us, He still protects us, He still wants to guide us. He's not, you know, we think sometimes God is this angry thing that's out there to judge us. Jesus took the judgment of God. In totality, there is no more judgment left for those who are in Christ. And so we don't test God. That's why, again, in the New Testament, says, we're quoting from the Psalms. In Psalms it says, don't test the Lord you've got. In other words, don't, you can't outprove God. That's really what it's saying. He will always be faithful and more loving than what we deserve or realise. So the Bible has lots of stories of people testing God but we're told we shouldn't do it because we, sh- we should actually be living in his love, not trying to prove that he can't live up to what he's promised. So here's the thing about testing. It's an everyday necessary event. So the chair you're sitting on at some stage had to be tested because once it's tested and proven, because that's what testing does, it proves the character or the worthwhileness of the object or the person? Can it really do what it was supposed to do? Your chair. So think about Jesus. Jesus is baptized. The Father from heaven says, This is my son who I'm well pleased. Now, can Jesus do what the Father just said about him? That's what we experience. It's a parallel for us. When we come into the kingdom and we experience the love of God, and then all of a sudden we're in a wilderness. Will we be the sort of character that God's just declared that we will be? That's what testing does. You know when uh, you, you know when you go shopping and they have those demonstrations for new products? You know, like a, a cheap knife? I remember one time we were in a supermarket and they were selling these serrated knives and the, the, the guy had his little bench set up and he had his little mic, you know, his little earpiece and he's spruiking. But of course, you know, he's throwing these tomatoes on the knife he's holding the knife he's throwing it and slashing the knife then he get a bit of metal pipe and try and cut the pipe didn't cut get another tomato and throw it on there we bought some of those knives and guess what if you try and cut a metal pipe the knife doesn't work anymore I tested it and disproved it (laughs) testing is an everyday necessary event for objects whether it's this, this particular pulpit, your chair, the car you drive, the aeroplane you last sat in, what, whatever your, your workspace, everything gets tested, the medications you take, everything gets tested. Is it going to do what its claim is? We get tested by God. Are we going to be the children of God? Wow. Are we going to be mature, grown up, loving, forgiving? We get tested because we have to be proven. In fact, Peter uses a phrase, in 1 Peter, he uses a pray, phrase, approved. When you get tested, you get approved. God approves of you because you show God you're the very thing that he said you would be. Now, temptation is a different thing. You, you actually try and rely on your own resource, your own reasoning, or you want to give in to something you know is going to corrupt you and dishonour the gospel that you so... vitriolically on a Sunday proclaim but then you go and do something that you know is corruptive to your heart soul and mind and dishonors the God that's temptation same word testing or tempting double meaning so testing is necessary tempting is the pressure to ruin you that's what the devil does We do it ourselves. So here's the thing about temptation. You know, James says in actually the very first chapter, he says, when you're tempted, don't say it's God. It's your desires, your thoughts, your heart, and you get led away. In other words, you go down that track of what you're thinking and desiring. So we actually sometimes, it's not just the devil, it's our own corrupt thinking and heart that takes us down a path where we give in. And we know know the feeling it's going to impact and corrupt who we're supposed to be and who we're meant to be as, as disciples and followers of Jesus, but it's because we're corrupt that we give in. So the person who tests us, so the Holy Spirit pushes Jesus into the wilderness, I'm suggesting he does the same to us, He's testing us to mature, grow and prove us. But the devil and our own corrupted thinking tempts us. It's pressure to ruin us. So the question is, do you want to do you want to flourish and become stronger and mature? Or are you going to give in and actually go back to the way you were before you met Jesus? Because that's what some Christians do. A test really has to do with the situation itself. Temptation has to do with the internal stuff that goes on in our own hearts and minds. So the moment of testing or temptation may be initiated either by the devil yourself, but our response is what makes the difference. God allows this world to include temptation. There's no question about that. He's not the author or he doesn't make it happen. But because of our own fallenness and stupidity, we tempt ourselves. We have the, the actual word devil, Satan, literally means the adversary, the accuser. So that's what the devil, that's that's how the devil's wired. It's a description of who he is. He's gonna come and try and accuse you and get you to do things that are anti Christ or anti-gospel. But your response is the one that determines whether you are being tested or tempted. So temptation, although it's not authored by God, is used, or everything's used by God to grow us. So by going through these wilderness experiences, we have to look at what's motivating us, how we're responding. Here's the third thing and the last thing. I'll get the worship team to come up. Wilderness testing is necessary, but it's only temporary. Forty days. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days. That's limited. After 40 days, something else happens. He, he's no longer in the wilderness. He goes down to Galilee and starts preaching. Now, again, I'm, I'm using this as a parallel for us. So your wilderness experiences, though it's necessary, you have to be tested Your character has to be built. Your discipleship has to be forged. The wilderness matters to God because it will do things in you that will develop you to a point that you can't get any other way. As unpleasant as you feel at the time, you come out the end a different person. You're actually ready for the very thing that God's designed and calling you to do when you walk through the wilderness. But it's only temporary. Now, it feels like forever, right? When you're in the wilderness, anyone actually had a wilderness experience? It feels like you've been there for 40 years, not 40 days. But I really felt in my heart as I was was praying about this particular message and the words and the play on terms, testing, tempting, that some of you feel like you're in a wilderness. Some of you feel like you're in a wilderness of being tested, so you're actually staying the course, but it's difficult. It's been a struggle. And some of you actually feel like you're in the wilderness of temptation, and you're sort of this far from doing either the wrong thing or giving up. But it's only temporal. 40 days. Now, you know, the word 40 in Scripture is a loaded term with all these images and meanings. So, the children of Israel, according to Hebrews we just read before, were in the wilderness being tested 40 years. How long does it rain on the earth for Noah? 40 days. Moses, how many years before he actually went to Pharaoh? Does anyone know? 40. 40 years in the wilderness, being prepared. So after he left the palace, um, killed the guard, ran into the desert, he was there 40 years before he had the burning bush experience. And God called him to lead the children of Israel. 40. This is a loaded number in Scripture. Now, in ancient Greece, they believed that a human fetus only became what they understood as a baby or human at day 40. Now, you don't know that because we don't live in ancient Greece, but theologians tell us that. This is a loaded term for Mark. 40 days he was there. Because after 40 days, new, new beginning. You're trying to avoid the wilderness, you've got to walk through it. Because after wilderness, there's something totally amazing that that, will, that actually will define who you are. So this is the thing: the wilderness doesn't define your value. That's what we feel when we're in there, right? We feel like I'm worthless. This is horrible. How can God do this to me? Why Why am I here? Should I not? You know, should I go somewhere else? Should I do this? And sometimes we actually run away from the wilderness. But in actual fact, if you come out the other end of that 40-day illustration might be a literal 40 days hope it's not 40 years but it's about new birth new beginnings fulfilling jesus fulfilled the call that the father had put on his life as he stepped out of the wilderness not before It illustrates our journey or our story as well 40 years elijah got prepared for his ministry another 40 Moses was on Mount Sinai getting all the law, so the Ten Commandments, 40 days. 40 days, Jesus was in a concentrated growth spurt or maturity or development in the wilderness. Jesus moved from his baptism, which is really like the announcement of who the Messiah would be. And this is him. It's like this embryonic Messiah at his baptism. 40 days in the wilderness being tested and then all of a sudden he comes out preaching, delivering, ministering healing he becomes the very thing that the father always intended him to be he came out of that tempting testing time and the other side he he was the Messiah, the full Messiah the mature, the proven doing the salvation work that God always intended and that's where God's trying to take you and me to get us engaged in his salvation work that he's always intended but there's no shortcuts don't bypass the wilderness you'll actually bypass your own development you'll stunt your own spiritual growth you'll stay immature in areas and in ways that God's trying to actually strip off you wilderness counts it's difficult, it's painful it can seem like forever but it builds character. It for- we get forged in the wilderness. It's development in the desert. That's exactly what it is. It's growth. It's change. In fact, it's interesting, you know, the Old Testament the Hebrew word for testing was the imagery of putting metals through fire. So silver, gold. You know, if you read the Old Testament where it uses the word test. um, So, in fact, in Psalms, there's a psalm that says, and the Lord test us as a refiner does with silver. That's the image. The wilderness is hot, it's fiery, but what comes out the other end is the purity All the impurities, the stuff that shouldn't be there that don't make either silver, gold or other precious metals illuminate, the way we enjoy them, that's all stripped away. And that's the imagery here of us being tested. This is not punishment. This is refinement. Because it's going to take you somewhere you'll never get any other way and it's God's plan for your life to walk through the other side. Whether it's exact 40 days or metaphorically 40 days, wilderness counts to God. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to finish... Our time together this morning. I want you to close your eyes for a moment, just to shut out the distractions. If you feel like you're in a wilderness, and you, I feel that there's some people here that have been crying out to God, you felt like your your wilderness experience has been aimless. But I want to tell you, it has a purpose. You feel like you should have avoided the wilderness, but actually, God has put you there for growth, development. You, 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 you will spring up like never before out of the wilderness. It doesn't define your worth. The wilderness doesn't say that you're worthless. What the wilderness does say is God loves you so much that he's trying to develop your character and give you strength, insight and a relationship with him that will take you to where he's planning and that will last you a lifetime. That's what the wilderness does. Don't avoid it. It doesn't define you. You're being forged for the future. The devil is not in control of the wilderness space. God is. God's presence is there. God's help is there. God's provision is there. We get so focused on the enemy. He's not worth focusing on. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He never tells the truth. He never indicates to you what's really happening. But you think sometimes he's right. He's wrong. God's presence is always in the wilderness. God's protection is always in the wilderness. It was there for Jesus, it's there for you, it's there for me. We don't give up because we find ourselves in a wilderness from time to time. If we do that, we're not going to fulfil the very calling and destiny that's on our lives in totality because we're going to stay immature as disciples. The Holy Spirit will lead you there, but you'll experience God there like in no other place, in no other way. The wilderness fashions you and forges you for a future. You're being turned into the likeness of Jesus himself. You want to follow Christ? He went through the wilderness. We have to go through the wilderness. We follow Him wherever He's gone. We're not waiting for God in the wilderness. God is at work in us in the wilderness. It feels like nothing's happening, but a lot is happening. That's what's going on in the wilderness. Now, if you if you feel that's you, I want you to just come out. I'm going to pray over you right now. Just come out. So you feel like you're being tested or you feel like you're being tempted. There's no shame in temptation. Come on, just come on. I know there's a stack of people. The Lord was telling me this morning there's a number of people. You, you feel like you're on the verge. You feel like it's too hard. You feel like it's unfair. You feel like it's not right. There's, you feel like this sense of injustice that you're stuck in the wilderness. But the wilderness has a purpose that's far beyond what you can think or know that God is doing. It's not a reflection on your value to God, it's not a reflection on your past. Because sometimes we think, oh, well, it just shows I'm not worthy, really, to God. that's 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 a lie from the enemy the wilderness is forging us to be stronger mature, better to enter into the the next phase or the season that God has for us and I I think that's true for us as a church, as a congregation but it's true for some of us individually right now the temptation that you're experiencing isn't going to define you the gospel, Jesus defines you that's what happens now what everybody else, just everybody close your eyes if your eyes are open. If you want to know what it's like to follow Jesus, I'm going to give you an invitation right now. You've been feeling the Holy Spirit. You, you don't know what the word is, but we use the word Holy Spirit. That's the presence of God. You can feel it in your heart right now. That, that He's act, you can feel His presence as you've heard the worship, as you've heard the preaching. You can feel that God is right there. He, he's right on you right now. Who's that? Just put your hand up in the air. There's someone here right now. You can feel the very presence of God for the very first time. It's so unusual, so different. I can't see any hands up. But if, if, listen, if that's you, come and see me after the service. We're about to finish. What we do, you, we're not asking you to join our church. We're not asking you to join a denomination or to believe certain things. We simply want to introduce you to who Jesus is. So we have a we have a booklet on who Jesus is. We give you a, a, a Bible. And we want to help you to discover and investigate what Jesus said about himself. And if you want to, by your own choice, your own volition, you can make him the one that speaks into your life every single day. That's what it means to be a Christian. So if that's you, come and see me. Let's pray. Can I have the ministry team, just come and lay hands on, on yeah, So John, Linda, Charles, Sue, Jordan, any of the elders here as well. Anyone on the ministry team, just come out. I just want everyone to have someone laying hands on them. We need a few more. So Melissa, why don't you come out as well. Why don't you come out, Chris. Chris, just come and pray over the side for me. That, that gentleman over there. Now, if you're comfortable, we're just going to lift our hands. Everyone, if you're comfortable to do it, doesn't matter whether you front or not. Father God, we just pray right now for you to bring an understanding and a perception of what you are doing in people's lives. I pray, Father God over every single person that has responded to hearing your word. And Jesus, you went through wilderness. You know what it's like to be tempted and tested. And so, Father, we pray by the power and the anointing and the greatness of your Holy Spirit, that, Lord, you would release into these lives a strength of character. Forge them, make them, build them, develop them god i pray that they would come out as giants of the christian faith changing the destiny of their families their own lives for generations to come father we just prophesy now in jesus name that you are setting them on a different path not the path that they were on before not a destructive one but one that's full of life liberty and freedom And Father, we pray a release and a breakthrough over their lives today. In Jesus' name, we give you the glory, God. We worship you, God. We praise your name, God. Father God, we say that you are king of all kings. And you are over all circumstances. Your presence is with us right in the wilderness today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Yes, let's give the Lord a hand. Let's give the Lord a hand. Come on, you can do better than that.